How y'all doing? If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, and we're going to start at verse 1. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, let us read here and let us understand, God. Truly let your word seep deep in our heart, Father God. Enlighten us and draw us closer to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we pick it up in Romans chapter 11. And what we're going to transition into talking about is what semi we started last week. Because last week we was talking about how tradition can blind us from the reality of true worship to God. And how Jesus was talking about how the Pharisees, even though they had a form of worship, that basically their worship wasn't legit because their heart wasn't in it. And then we looked at Isaiah, how <clears throat> the thing that made their heart not be in it or uh, made them blind or illegitimate in their worship is the fact that they elevated their traditions above Scripture, which caused them to have a worship of God that was blind. And then we transitioned from there and told her that part of that blindness came from them elevating certain parts of their God-given identity and not truly seeing the picture of it and created traditions that allowed them to misunderstand God. And we ended with the identity that Christ has given us and that he made it known that the way people are going to know that he is the Christ and that God truly sent him and that we are truly his disciples is by our love towards one another and us being one. And that was chief on the plan of God that even going to the cross, he stopped to pray that those who hear those who believe on his name, would be one. So this unity thing is a big deal to God. And we're going to transition from there and just build on that. And what we're going to try to do in the next couple of weeks is understand what does it mean to be a church? Like, what is it that God has designed? What is it in his plan? How is it that he sees when he sees the church? In order for us to understand that to start, this is my groundwork and the way I'm, we're going to argue this thing is that I believe that God has not switched his mission. That what God has been doing, he is still doing. And that he has not changed his plan since Abraham. And so when God brought the church onto the scene, it wasn't a change of plan. That God like, oh, that Israel thing, I messed that whole thing up. So let me do something different. So I'm going to get some new people and we're going to start this whole new thing. Because... I ain't know what I was doing when I tried that thing. Abraham, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not what God did. So the church is not a separate entity. It's a continuation of the same work that God has been doing. And we're going to build this case to be the groundwork of our argumentation for later on. So what I'm going to try to demonstrate is that our work as a church is a continuation and fulfillment of the work of Israel. But first we have to see what right do we have to make that claim. So we Picking up in Romans chapter 11. I say then, have God cast away his people? God forbid. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture said of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thy altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what said the answer of God unto him? 
I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. We're going to pause right there. So this is Paul's argumentation. So the question that we're opening up with is, has God done away with Israel? Like, did he scrap that plan and has he moved on to something else? And God, I mean, Paul gives two points to the argument to establish that, no, God has not done that. The first one he used was himself. So he's saying, I'm an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And I worship God and believe in Jesus. So since I'm an Israelite and I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I am testimony that God has not done away with the Israelites. He didn't move on. Then he goes to the Old Testament for justification. And he brings up Elijah. When Elijah was depressed and ready to give up, running from that woman, he, he prayed basically that God kill him because he didn't want to commit suicide, but he wanted to die. And God's response was, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul's argumentation is that since God had a remnant in the day of Elijah, there is still a remnant now. And he adds this add extra to it. But this remnant is according to the election of grace. So God has not done away with Israel. God has not kicked him out of his plan. God is still working with him. And the two proofs that we have is that Paul, and if we look at all the early apostles, they were Israelites. So God still worked in the Israelite community. He still saved Jews. And he has a, 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 a track record of keeping a remnant. So just like there was a remnant in the day where they turned from God and worshiped Baal, he's saying there's a remnant now. So God is not done with them. And this is the foundation of his case. Let's see how he fleshed this thing on out. And in 6, if by grace then it is of no more works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. What then is what then? Israel have not obtained that which it seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. We'll pause right there. As he said, we got this election. And the reason this election shows that they are part of the remnant, it ain't about nothing that they did. It's all according to grace. And he make this little funny argumentation. Say if it's of grace, then it's of no longer works. Because if it will work, then it would not be grace. So basically saying, it says, since God has this people, and it was nothing they can do that they make them this people. We know that it's all of grace. So since it's all of grace, he said that. Have Israel not obtained that which is seek for? So they're searching for something. And the question is, did they get it? And he answered, he said, they didn't get it, but the election have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. So he got this separation in Israel. They were looking for something. They didn't get what they were looking for. Said, but there's an election. There's this choice group of people, this remnant within them. They obtained the thing that God had for them, and the rest were blinded. Let me pause. Let's read a little bit before we go down. According in verse 8, as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David said, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. So he's talking about this blindness. So you got this remnant in Israel who has obtained the thing that God had for them. But there's this other section. He said they are blinded. And this was what we were hitting at last week. That when 
Jesus spoke to them and he said, hey, you draw nigh to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. He was prophesying to them and telling them that you are blinded. You have been cut off. You cannot see. And what Paul is saying is this is a group. This is a part of the Israelite community. Now, let's think about this for a minute. It's going to be real serious as we go on. But it's something to keep in mind. They were religious in their lifestyle. They were faithful in their attendance to the synagogue. They read and they memorized the scripture. They followed the law of Moses as best as they could. They tied, Jesus said, off mint and cumin. So externally, when we see them, they knew God. They walked with God. They loved the Lord. Because everything about their external reality demonstrated them to be the people of God. So when we talk about them being blinded, we have to understand that this was a religious and devoted group of people. Watch, watch what Paul says to them. It gets a little crazy. Keep that in mind now. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciliation of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So we're given this picture. That basically this blindness this this hardening, this period of slumber happened to them so that salvation can come. It's not stay here long, but the quick point. If the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time of Christ did not reject Christ, nobody would have killed them. So if they all would have accepted him and received him, today was what the church folks called Palm Sunday. If Palm Sunday would have been the extenuation of the rest of that week where they just went on celebrating and worshiping Christ, we wouldn't have got here. So he's saying that their fall, the fact that they stumbled over Christ, that they did not recognize him, is our salvation. So it brought salvation to all of us because they crucified him, which was the means that God used to save the world. So this is his point. So if their fall be the salvation of us all, what shall their restoration be? So since through them being cast down, we all get lifted up. Like, what's going to happen once God lift them up? It's like, that's going to be life from the dead. So it's a picture of resurrection. So you got this full life community. They was cast down. They went through this blindness for a period to bring salvation to us. Now we're going to get to the, the, the meat. Now, why does this thing get a little tricky? And it's beautiful, though. In verse 16, for if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy... So are the branches. Read that one more time. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. So this is the principle he laying down. Pulling off of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when you brought your, when you sacrificed, you brought your first. Gave your first fruits offering. And he said that brought blessing to everything else that came after it. So that's what he mean. When the first fruit's holy, all of it is holy. So once God received that, and he takes the light in it. That means he received it all. And all of it is blessed. So that separated portion brings blessing to the whole portion. And he said the same thing. If the root be holy, the whole tree is holy. 
So if, if, if the foundation of the thing be blessed, whatever the foundation is, that's what the body is. That's the basic principle of what he lying down here. So if the root is this, so is the offshoot. Y'all got that. We're going to come back to this one continually throughout the weeks because it, it, it messed with a lot of religious teaching. Now, in 17, he said, And if some of the branches were broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. So now he's transitioned. Now, in verse 16, when he get to talking about this planting stuff, what did he get a branch from? He didn't say nothing about no branch. He talked about a root. Then he said, if some of the branches, who do he branches? Like, what do he, he get all this talk from? And it seems to be, once we keep going, that the branches are the Israelites. Because they were broken off. This following from his logic of them being cast down, of them being separated in this level of darkness, and us being brought in. So these branches are messed up. But the root is holy. What is the root? If the Israelite are the branches, what is the root? And that's something we're going to go to later. But watch this now. How many of y'all ever seen Karate Kid? You know, y'all seen that movie Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi in his bonsai tree? You, y'all, y'all, y'all might remember the scene where the, where the little man broke Mr. Miyagi's bonsai tree. He snapped the thing on there. And Mr. Miyagi, with all the coolness, like a holy man, kept his calm. And he wrapped the tree up. And by the end of the movie, the broken tree was a whole tree. Because that broken off branch grew back and reconnected to the rest of the tree. And it's a beautiful little thing. And that's the same picture Paul is using here. He's saying God broke off some of the branches that was natural to the tree. All the Gentiles, y'all was a wild olive tree. So y'all was out there uncultivated, nobody taking care of you. God took you, connected you to the natural branches. And now it's a whole tree. But let's understand that analogy. If you bring an outside branch and connect it to your original tree, what have you done to the original tree? Nothing. It is the same thing that it was. But the thing that ended up being altered is the broken branch. It becomes a part of the one whole thing. And this is what Paul said happened. We were out, Gentiles, out there, you wild, Olive. He snatched you from there and brought you into this one thing. So whatever it is that God was doing in Israel, when the church age, as some say, started, he didn't turn and start a new thing. He brought us into that thing. So the same tree is still growing. And still being what it was, we are now part of that growth. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? So however we think of church, however we think of whatever it is that we call ourselves, we cannot think of ourselves as being something other than what the Israelites were. Because we were grafted into that same tree. So God didn't start a new work. But he brought us into his old work. Says some of them were broken off and some of y'all were brought in, but it's still the growth and the continuation of the same tree. Y'all, y'all see the picture. 
And we're going to play with this a little bit and, and drive it deep into our skulls. But he's saying, since you were brought in, don't boast against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root beareth thee. So like what, 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 what reason you got to boast? Because in your boasting, you don't bear the root. Basically, you're not holding up the root. You are something that's been brought in. So what you got to boast about? The root holds you up. You are connected to the tree. You ain't the tree. So the church, we ain't the tree. But we were brought into something that God already had going on. He ain't doing no new thing. So the new thing that God is doing is the same old thing that God been doing. And what, 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 verse 19, watch this now. That would say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. So that's, that's a very strong verse. Like, you say they were broken off. Right, we are. They were broken off. Why were they broken off? Because of unbelief. You stand, so you're connected to the tree by faith. Don't be high-minded, but fear. So there's a level of reverence and, and, and fear that comes if we understand this picture. Now watch this. This is Paul talking. And this is early Judaism. Early in the first century. There was still a temple. They were still a religious people. They still had the Sanhedrin. They still had the high priest. Synagogues everywhere. Moses being read. Moses being taught. Children being trained to tithe. Like mint, dill, cumin. All of these things are still going on. So when we understand unbelief, we cannot understand it to mean a rejection of God. Because they still identified themselves as the people of God. They were still vehement in their defense of God. They were still sober in their connection with God. The crucifixion, they would not walk into Pilate's house. Why? Because it was the Passover and they was observant. They did not want to be defiled. These are the people that we was talking about, he said, but they were cut off because of unbelief. What in the world does he mean unbelief? And this is the sobering thing that we need to get into our skull. And this is something that God has really been pressing upon me about the church. I've been sitting there praying with this thing because what it demonstrates to me is that it's possible to continue a religious routine. It's possible to speak the name of God. It's possible to have reverence for the name of God and still live in unbelief. And still be in a place where God does not accept you as a part of his family and his community. Even though everything about your lifestyle say that you are. And if we say, don't be high minded, but fear. And if we see the full picture, it should produce a greater weight of fear. Because it shows me that I cannot get my strength. I cannot get my confidence from my religious activities. I cannot get it from the simple fact that I go out and I tell people about Jesus, that I lift up my hands and I bear the name of Christ. That doesn't mean anything because these Jews did the same thing. Jesus testified. He said, you go out and you make a proselyte. So that means they were out there witnessing. That means they were out there teaching and telling people, instructing them about, about Yahweh and who he really was. They were doing these things. 
But when God saw them, he saw a people that were not his people. He saw people living in unbelief. So our unbelief can't just be a, a, a sense where we say, well, we just turn away from God. They didn't do that. They were still following. They still identify. They were still going to church, worshiping, memorizing scripture, doing all that things. And it is a sad reality, I believe, that the vast majority of those who call themselves church now are in the same predicament. We got church activities down. We are devoted in our lives. We pass out food. I'm saying we, we, we go, we minister to, to people, we pray, we read our Bibles, we go to church and we stay in all those things. But is our heart truly yielded to him? And if we cannot lose this fear, this reverence, this awe and this sense so that God is not somebody to be played with. He's not somebody to be trifled with. That is real business when we're talking about being in the presence of God. Y'all understand what I'm saying? Because unbelief don't just mean turning away. Because God identified them as the same thing. Even though they walked the road. I'm saying we would say they were Christians. Because they were very religious. They read their Bible. Probably no more scripture than the vast majority of us. Pray probably more than the vast majority of us. Fast more than the vast majority of us. Whole lifestyles and the whole way that they live, they refuse to go over people's houses because they ain't want to be with God. But we got folks who are saved doing everything in the world and refuse to cut off some friends because, you know what I'm saying, they're my people. I've always been with them. You know what I'm saying, I just can't turn my back on them. But we supposed to love God more than they do. But that, that, I ain't even stay that long on that. Verse 22, I mean 21. Therefore, if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. Paul just, he don't, he don't understand. See, Paul didn't understand that, uh, that once we say, we always say. Ain't nobody teach him that. He was out in Mount Ararat talking to God. God forgot a piece of the lesson. He's talking about people might be cut off the church and saying they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So basically, pay attention. Make sure that you're in faith. And you continue in faith. Because just like he cut them off, he can cut you off. But just like he brought you in, who was not a part of the tree, if they repent and begin to believe, he can bring them back in because they're natural. They are actual part of the tree. It's going to be easier to graft them back in. Y'all are outsiders. So be fearful. But the one thing I want you to understand from this is that we are a part of what? The household of Israel. That That's the work that God is doing. Now watch this. It gets a little more crazy. In verse 25, for I would not, brethren, that you should not be ignorant of this mystery. So there's a mystery going on here. Least you should by, least you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. 
And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them. When I shall take away their sins as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. So the basic argumentation is that God has set this time up. And this is a part of the mystery of God. That he had ordained that the salvation of the world come through them being rejected. And if their salvation come, if our salvation come through them being rejected, we need to understand that them being restored is a part of the plan of God. And a part of that coming is through us being merciful. So we, the way we relate to them, it shows that we demonstrate that God got a plan at work. And it's going to be to the salvation of them. Because the gifts and the callings of God are not repent without, without repentance. Now I know some of y'all charismatic people, y'all heard that often. And then they won't tell you that's why a preacher can lay hands even though he's an adulterer. That ain't what Paul was talking about. But basically what he was talking about is the election that God has gave to Israel because of the promise of Abraham. So through these covenants, God's plan is going to be made sure and he ain't going to turn from it. So once God made a plan and once God decided to do something, his plan going to be made sure he's not going to turn from it. So that's why all ills were going to be saved because God going to bring a deliverer out of Zion who going to save his people from their sins. Now this side question, we're going to get back on track. Now, if part of the promise to them is that God is going to bring a deliverer and his deliverer is going to save them from their sins and we have been brought into them and we are part of this package now, what did that mean that the deliverer was going to do for us? Oh, oh, now you're going too far. <laughs> you sure that what it means? Okay, that, that sounds very logical. Go to Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11. Ephesians 2.11. That God's got a plan. And if we want to understand who we are, as the church, if we understand God's mission for the children of Israel, we can understand who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. 2.11, Ephesians 2.11 said, Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made with hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometime far off are made now by the blood of Christ. All right. This is the picture of the Gentiles. Now, let's pause and make this statement. Biblically, there were only two nations of people to an Israelite. Either you was an Israel, you was a Jew, as it came to be called later. And there was everybody else. The word Gentiles just simply mean nations. So when you're talking about Gentiles, you're talking about everybody else. So that's all that there was. There was Jews and Gentiles, Israelites and Gentiles. And Gentiles is everybody else. So these were the only categories of people. Israelites and everybody else. It's like since you were in uncircumcision, 
you were not of this house of Israel. What made you a part of everybody else? And what, in verse 12, Paul says some mean stuff. Said that at the time, so in that time when you just a part of everybody else, you were without Christ. You didn't have no Messiah. You didn't have no Savior. You was aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So there was some blessing that comes to being a citizen of Israel. You didn't get none of that. And you were strangers from the covenants of promise. You were cut off. So when it comes to these promises that God gave, you don't get none of that. You ain't have no hope. And Paul ended off most disrespectful. Not only did you not have any hope, you ain't have God. So this is Paul's description of everybody else. So you were cut off from a savior. You were cut off from all the blessings of being a citizen of Israel. All the covenants and promises that God made, they ain't got nothing to do with you. Which mean you ain't got no hope. Which mean you ain't have no God. So this was the condition that Paul was saying everybody else was under. But then he made this strange statement in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you were sometimes afar off or made nigh by the blood of Christ. So through the blood of Christ and in Jesus, you who are sometimes far off. Far off from what? What were we far off from? We were cut off from the tree. But he was talking about what? You ain't had no Messiah. You were cut off from the, 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 the blessings of being a citizen. The promises and the covenants. You ain't had nothing to do with that. You were cut off from hope. You were cut off from God. But now through the blood of Jesus, you have been brought nigh. So it's something that the blood of Jesus does that gives us a connection with God, that gives us hope, that breaks us a part of these promises and the covenants, that makes us a part or give us right to the to the commonwealth of Israel, basically the blessings of citizenship of Israel, and it gives us a connection to Christ. So we are brought nigh to all these things through the blood of Jesus. Now I'm going to ask you a deep question in a minute. In verse 14, it said, For he is our peace, who hath made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So you brought nigh by the blood. Why? Because Christ is our peace, and he hath made both what? One. Both of what? Israel and all the rest of the nations. Now it's just one. So what they got as being citizens of Israel, now we get access to that. Because we are a part of them. And he go a little bit deeper. He said, have broken down the middle wall of partition between us, abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the commandments contained in the law in ordinance. So everything contained in the law that separated us, that made us without hope, that cut us off from the covenants, that made us without God, he abolished that stuff for to make himself of twain one new man. So in himself, he's taking two and making one. Y'all got that picture? In himself, he's taking twain and making one new man. Now, a very perplexing question. How often do we think it normal as one man, one person, for one aspect of our body to go completely contrary to all the rest of it? And we don't think nothing wrong with that. Now, have you ever had that happen? 
He'll be like, man, that's just my hand. I'm saying, now you can't stop it. Nah, dog, it'll stop when it get ready. I can't tell my hand what to do. <laughs> He'll be like, what's wrong with your hand? Ain't nothing wrong with it. <laughs> you think that'd be a bit strange? Because since it's a part of one body, it should operate in unity with what? The rest of that body. That makes sense, don't it? And it said Christ took two, brought it in himself, and made one new man. So how many men is Christ making? One. How many churches is Christ making? One. And is this church something different from the one he started way back when he called Abraham? No. Because he took that that he brought from Abraham and he took those who were cut off from it and he made them one. So what they were, we are. And we cannot understand who we are without understanding what they were supposed to be. Because we are the fullness of them. We've been brought into that family. Now, you you look crazy, now. And said that he might reconcile both unto God and one body by the Christ. So, ask the question again. How often can one part of your body go off and do its thing and we not found like uh, that means something wrong? Never? Anytime one piece of your body is out of disagreement or disalignment with any other part of your body, that means something wrong. You won't call that a healthy body. That's deep. That that get real deep. Now I'm gonna make it a little more deep before I make my point. How did he make this one body? Say that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the what? By the cross. And earlier he said we were brought nigh by the blood. Say he abolished the, the commandments to making the twain one in himself. Now just think about that. So a part of Jesus' death was to bring different fractions and to make them one. Jesus died for the unity of the church. That's heavy. Because we thought it was deep last week when we were talking about he was on his way to the cross and stopped and started praying for us. And out of all the things he could have prayed for, he prayed that some folks who are going to come a long time, who are going to believe what they say, all of them need to be one. Now that was deep, like, in his dying, in his suffering moment, he took the time to pray that, hey, God, make them one. And now we see that part of the purpose of his dying was to make one. So if we be a disconnected body, is there be disunity in us, that means Christ died in vain. If we cannot be one, if we cannot fellowship in one, if we cannot move and operate as one whole system, Christ died in vain. And if them church folks who I grew up listening to be telling the truth, that means it's impossible for Christ to receive the reward of his suffering. Because they told me we always going to be separated. It's always going to be some disagreements. It's always going to be some disorder and disunity. We just got to do the best we can to get along as the best we can. And if that be the case, Christ died in vain. And I truly should not have any hope that one day I'm going to go to be him in glory. Because he died to make that happen. And if he can't make the one of the things he died for happen, why should I believe he can do another one? If God cannot unify his people, if we can never get on one accord 
for what reason I believe that, that my sins have been forgiven and I've been saved? If it's impossible. And the amazing thing is, is that we have gotten to a place where it becomes acceptable for there to be disunity. Like I was telling them earlier, just some of the crazy things I heard churches arguing and fussing over. Like whether or not to put a clock in the back of the church. Is that not the dumbest thing I ever heard of? But people fight and they argue over these things. About whether what, what style of music we should play. Like, man, why we play good time music? We're a black church. And people leave churches because of these things. And their discord and their disharmony. And we cannot get along and we're at a place where we think this is the way it's supposed to be. And the amazing thing is to me, as I think and I reflect on this, it, it brings into question to me a whole lot of history. Now, y'all just did bear with me. If we trace the history of the church here in this country back, what we have is some of the quote-unquote greatest leaders of our church fought and took a stance that created separation in our church. Like I was telling them this morning, right? It's something I always think over and it's something I pray about quite often. A, a couple years ago, it's been a minute now, riding up Woodley Road, finna come on to the boulevard. You know, where Woodley and the boulevard connected, I was coming the other way though, down McGee. And that's the little road, Fish Road. And on Fish Road, they got this, uh, pretty nice sized church. It sit off up in the corner. And it's Whitfield Memorial United Methodist Church. And one day I was just driving them. I looked at that. I'm like, hmm, should we give a memorial to George Whitfield? And the reason I asked this question, because a little while before, my mind is a little crazy. I was wondering, like, what in the world? Why we call this place Huntington College? Who is Huntington? I'm just asking. You know, just looking some stuff up and searching. And I found out that there was this lady. She was the Countess of Huntington. I forgot her name now. <clears throat> but the, the school was named in honor of her. And she did a lot of orphanage work in here, even though she didn't come herself. She just sent money and visited every now and then in this region, mainly in Georgia, but parts of what came to be Alabama. She did a lot of work in. And when Whitfield came to America, he loathed the institution of slavery. He spoke against it as one of the greatest atrocities he ever seen on the face of the planet. Like, this is horrible. Like, how could this be? How could y'all as man of God allow this stuff to go on? Whether or not you participate in it or not. They're like, there's no way that this can go on. But then something amazing happened. After years of living here, he began, he, he became the head of their orphanage. And since it was in the South, in Georgia, a lot of the labor was slave labor. So the dudes who was out there cutting the grass were slaves. Folks in there in the kitchen cooking were slaves. Dudes making repairs and painting and patching up, all of them were slaves. And Whitfield began to turn his beliefs and he started to argue pro-slavery. And talked about the economic justifications for it. And I always, and, and that troubles me. And the reason that it troubles me is because how is it possible for one who is filled with the Spirit of God, a leader in the body of God, 
to separate a whole nation of people out and not allow them to have the same access and the same privilege that one group has. That don't sound like oneness to me. That don't sound like what Jesus died for. And so if it's possible for you to be filled with the same spirit of God that these other people you say they're filled with, why these spirits can't connect? Because Jesus died to bring all of us into one. So there should be unity. And so I have to ask you like, were these people in a predicament similar to the Pharisees of Jesus' day? Were they religious in their devotion, religious in their outward activities, but living in unbelief? Because they were working against the very thing that Jesus said he died for. And that's to bring unity. Y'all tracking with what I'm saying? And and it's a grave thing. And even as we make it to the day, a lot of this stuff creates some confusion in people. And now we still dealing with race and all this foolishness going on and people don't know how to, how to navigate because the one thing that mess a lot of people up because the people who they revere fall in line with these people. And one thing you cannot say is that they weren't saved. See, we know they were Christian, but they struggled with it. So race is something that Christians can struggle with. There ain't no way possible because unity is something that the spirit of God produces. So ain't no way for me to hate any other person on this planet and be filled with the love of Christ. I don't care what the reason for it is. You understand what I'm saying? And so we have to wrestle with these things and have to be willing to question, hey, hey, did that brother really know God? Because if he, if I'm following his foundation and he built the foundation that created this core, this unity, he wasn't working in, in, in the spirit of Jesus because Jesus came to bring what? Peace. Unity. He came to make one new man. He ain't came to make no black church and a white church. Jesus ain't make that. Who made it? Some men. And if some men working to make something that Jesus didn't make, who the men working for? Y'all just think about that for a minute. <laughs> let, let me get there. Y'all let me stay there too long. For through him, verse 18, we both have access by what? One spirit unto the Father. So with one spirit working in all of us to make what? One church. Now, this thing going to get a little bit more deep. Now, therefore, you are no more the strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So no longer are you separated, but you are fellow citizens. So all that citizenship stuff that Paul was talking about that we didn't have access to. Now you got it. And you went there with the saints. So all the blessings of, of, of Abraham, you got it. Everything that promised that came to every saint of God who just because they were connected to the stock of Israel, you fall in line with that. So this is a part of who we are as the people of God. God is not doing a separate work. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? He bringing us into the same work that he already been doing. And watch this. And are built up upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grow it unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So God has got this building, and we are built upon this foundation. This is what God is doing. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation. So when you go back, when you got all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, Daniel, Malachi, all of them are the foundation that we getting stacked up on. 
So that shows you in the mind of God, he's still doing the same work. God work ain't changed. And Christ is the cornerstone of that. So Christ is the key of this foundation. And the cornerstone was the thing that made sure that that kept the whole building in alignment. So if your cornerstone is square and you built properly on that cornerstone, the whole building going to be square. There's going to be unity and uniformity and all the rest of the bricks. Long as the one foundation is sure and you build in harmony with that. So Christ is this foundation. He's the cornerstone. So just like earlier, he was talking about the root produces holiness in the whole thing. And the first fruit produces holiness in the whole thing. Now he's saying the cornerstone produces righteousness and our connectivity throughout the whole thing. So Christ is the key point in this whole picture. Now ask this question, because if the root, if Christ is the root, he the vine, we the branches, that means we connected to him. Is Christ holy? So that means what about his church? Oh, Lord. Is it possible to be connected to a holy root and yourself be unholy? Now, if Paul knew what he was talking about. So since Christ is holy, we are holy. Why? Because we in him. That's deep. So if I want to be holy, what I need to do? That's all I got to do. As long as I stay in him, I'm going to be well. For how long? As long as I'm in him. <laughs> because he squares this whole thing up. Now, why did now? He said, we all are a, 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 a building built upon this one foundation, fitly framed together and grow to a holy temple and whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the spirit. So the spirit of God is working and he bringing us all together and he building this place for God to dwell. So that means we all should be a part of this one thing, a part of this one work, and it's all going to grow out <clears throat> to be the place where God dwells. So who is the church? Us. Not me. But us. And which one of us have more legitimacy than the other? Who is more special in the work of God? Because we all are part of this thing. And if one piece of us stick out apart from the frame, that means either the cornerstone ain't in line or we have been separated from the cornerstone. And we can't say Christ went crooked. So we should all be together, fitly framed. Is that possible? Paul said crazy stuff. We're going to look at it going forward. He's like, y'all should be together with one mind, working and striving for one thing. Like, hold up, man. We all different people. We all got different backgrounds. We all come from different perspectives, different theological persuasions. Is it possible for us all to be one? If Jesus died and if his work is efficient, it got to be. Like I said, amazing thing, when we, when, when me and the Apostle Jay started really getting serious about branching off, I don't know about him, but this is one thing I got to ask this question by, by, by men of God who I respect and the great leaders in the faith. One thing they could not understand, they asked the question, who the leader? Ain't nobody the leader. Like, well, 
Who make all the decisions? We make all the decisions. Like, so, how do that work? <laughs> because it could not be conceived in the mind of people that two different brothers can work in unity and it not fall apart. So in their mind, it has to be some trump card somewhere that give one of us the right over the other one that allow it all to work. Because they could not conceive that I can respect this brother to the same degree that he can respect me and we can be aligned. And even more crazy, we can make decisions independent of one another. And still walk step and step. <laughs> People couldn't concede that that could be possible. And I ain't gonna lie to you, like a little bit in my mind, like, is that even possible? Then I had to think, like, why wouldn't it be? He probably be my brother. And deeper than he probably be my brother, he probably be listening to the same spirit I'm listening to. That was supposed to be happening. So if the same spirit leading us both, we should be going well. The same way. Then it gets even deeper. Because as Christian people, we're supposed to be humble. Now, if a spirit of humility is on me, why wouldn't I be able to take leadership from my brother? I'm just saying, like, humble people don't mind following other people. I ain't, I ain't never met a humble person that mind. And you know, even crazy, the same should be said for all of us. Either one of you should be able to come to me and say, hey, man, you said this, 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 but I read my Bible this. And I should be able to, we should be able to sit down, discuss, and I should never say, well, if you're going to come around up, did what we believe in here. Cause we supposed to be working out the same spirit. So as long as both of us being meek, both of us being humble, and both of us listening to the same God, we should be able to come to some agreement. And more than should be able to, Jesus died to make it happen. God is doing one work. He ain't building a whole bunch of churches. He's building one. And if there's not unity with you and the rest of that one, you aren't a part of the church. Don't know what you got going on. But it ain't what God worked doing. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? Now my Paul gonna mess this thing up a little bit further. Let's go on to chapter three. Except for this call, I Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. If you heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me to you, Lord, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Paul talking about a mystery again. As I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul, I told y'all about this thing. I want you to get it. Which in other ages were not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the spirits. What is that? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. 
So this is the mystery that God, that Paul said he was going around preaching. That these others are going to be brought in and made fellow heirs of the same promise and the same blessings that God gave to us as the people of God. So who are we as the church of God? We are some wild outsiders who was brought into one unified work that God was doing. God is not doing a new work. He's doing the same thing. He's building his people. One people. One nation. And if we understand what this work was, we can better understand what it is we're supposed to be doing. We ain't got to make up now. Are, are y'all tracking with me? So we, we, we got that point. We're connected with Israel. God didn't stop dealing with them and say, all right, I'm tired. Y'all ain't get it. I'm going to do something new and I'll come back with y'all later. Now, God didn't do the trick like, like your teacher taught you when you're taking them standardized tests. Like, you don't know one, just skip it and come back to it later. God didn't get to the point like, I can't figure this one out. I can't make these people want for nothing in the world. So I'm just going to skip them and go do another one. Let me figure out what I can do with these Gentiles. Then I might come back. That ain't what God doing. And God ain't around here building a whole bunch of different churches. He building one church. And it's all a part of that same work that he started with Abraham. So if we understand what God was doing with them people who descended from Abraham, we can understand what we're supposed to be. So let's take one little look at it. And we run this little chain a little bit. And it's going to start our journey. Go to Exodus. Exodus 19. Exodus 19. We'll start at verse 4. It said, And Moses went up unto God. And the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me, above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now this is a cooler piece. I just get the picture to try to put, put it all together. So this is fresh off their deliverance from Egypt. God and just brought them over the Red Sea. He didn't bless them, gave them the manna. He didn't bless the water, gave them something to eat. So now they journey to this place and they come to this mountain and God calls them to stop. And just get the scene. You're standing before this big old mountain. Y'all have just seen crazy miracles. All your enemies did. You have seen food grow out the ground. God just miraculously brought to you water. Things been crazy. You done had a, a, a grand journey. Saying you've been rolling like Indiana Jones type journey. Like you've been crazy. And now you stop. And you're standing here staring at a mountain. And God started talking to Moses out of the top of the mountain. Say, hey, Moses. Yeah, God just show up, start talking. Moses, come on here, Moses. Let me holler at you. And God take this time, he take this Paul to give Moses this special message for these people. And look at the message. Now we, we're going to zone in. We're probably going to read this a couple of times. We're going to end up reading the whole thing. He said, this is what you're going to say. So God took this special time to speak to Moses and tell him, this is what you say to the children of Israel. If you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, Paul, so the beginning of his argumentation and everything he's saying is centered upon this act. Of his deliverance of them from bondage. Now. What did they do. So that God could have to deliver them to be. I mean to be brought out of Egypt. What did they do? 
Nothing. They just believe. Moses came talking some stuff and they believe what Moses said. That's it. But this is the foundation of their identity. So because of what you seen me do, how I bore you on eagle's wing, brought you out of bondage, and what did he bring them? To what? Look at it. What did he bring them to? Huh? Uh-uh. What did he say? Say, so I brought you, bear you on eagle's wings, and brought you where? To himself. So he took them out of Egypt and brought them to God. Y'all see the picture there? And he's saying, this is the foundation of everything else that we're going to understand when we're talking about the identity of the Israelites. They are who they are because God rescued them. And in his rescue, he didn't rescue them and just set them free. He brought them where? To himself. So he took them out of slavery to one system and made them his. That's the picture. And all that they had to do to get that was what? Believe. Believe. That's it. And the reason God responded to them this way is because a promise he made way back to Abraham. God made a promise and God had a plan. They were beneficiaries of that promise. And all they had to do was believe. And this was the foundation of their identity. So God is willing to work and do supernatural things on their behalf to bring them into alignment with a promise that he made hundreds of years before they even existed. That's deep. And who are we? We are fellow citizens with them. So the same blessings that flow based off the promises that were given, we get them. And we get the same supernatural God working the same supernatural way on our behalf and we get the same outcome. He worked on them and he worked for them, not just to set them free from the things that were holding them, but to bring them unto himself. So their deliverance was from was a deliverance too. That's what it was. And, and, and watch what he say because of that. You seen what I did now, since you seen what I did, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then shall you be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine. So based on what I did to you, based off that, you trust me. And if you trust me, you obey my voice, do the things I tell you to do. You will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine. So this is the foundational identity of the children of Israel. And, and I always had to pause there. He said, because all the earth is mine, y'all going to be mine. Now just think about this picture. It's nations all over. They just got delivered from one of the greatest nations at the time. Chinese dynasty started around the same, same, same time. Pretty great nation. But he said, since all that mine, the whole world, I'm going to take y'all. Why? He don't give him no reason. Later he told them, because I chose you, y'all ain't strong, y'all ain't big, y'all ain't about nothing, but y'all mine. 
in that word peculiar treasure. Now this is, this is one we're going we're gonna to harp on because this is the basis of our identity, who we are. Peculiar. Now when, nowadays when we think of peculiar, we think of strange. When we say somebody's peculiar, like they're strange, they act weird. But originally that's not what that word meant. When you go way back in, in, in King James time, peculiar didn't mean strange. When he's talking about a peculiar treasure, what he means is a, is a specially chosen treasure. So a peculiar thing is the choice thing. It's, 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 the, it's the momentum of all my valuables. I got a peculiar thing. Like when I used to, when I was young, I used to collect cards. I had a big basketball card collection. But then I had this one card that was autographed by uh, Charles Barkley. And it was a peculiar card. Because the card itself, it had a pretty decent value on it. But then I got a chance to get Charles Barkley to autograph it. So no longer did this card go in the book with the rest of the cards. It was set off. It was different. Because this card here is special. The round mound, the rebound himself signed it. So it was a separated card. And that's what he mean by peculiar treasure. Like y'all, y'all the ones that I want. My choice things, my prized possession. That's who you will be. And this is the identity that God has placed upon the children of Israel. Y'all are my top people. Top people where? Above all the nations. So God's looking out over all of humanity. And he say, y'all going to be my people. That's deep. And now he brings us into this thing, which makes us a chosen and special people. Like you special. Above all the nations. Now, let me say that. I have to say this. Because it's strange and it makes you think. How we ain't supposed to say stuff like this. It's possible for us to go around and say, hey, I'm better than that. Like, I'm better than that. I don't know why I'm supposed to say that, but I can say that. You know why? Because God chose me out. Go to, go to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Watch, watch this. Deuteronomy 14, we're going to start at 1. Say, you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. And the Lord hath chosen this to be thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all nations that are above the earth. Now this is, <clears throat> this verse, it shows up a couple of times. He said it again in Deuteronomy 26. But there's these times throughout this thing when God is repeating the law and telling them, Stuff that they can't do. But just get this picture in your head. God is bringing them into the land in the midst of foreign nations. And those foreign nations had practices and things that they did. This was one of those practices. They made it, had special markings and cuttings that they did in honor of their ancestors and all this different stuff. Now, why God said, you don't do that. Why, God? Because you're my people. So in the mind of God, there are certain things that's going to be around you that you're not going to be able to participate in just because you belong to me. I, I, I'm better than that. 
So the Israelites could have went into the land and like, hey, man, why y'all don't make no cousin in your flesh for the day? Like, man, we better than that. You know who we are? Don't go around doing what y'all do. We God's people. Like, man, why y'all don't eat the same? Man, you, what? Eat what y'all eat? Y'all regular people. We God's people. And the amazing thing is, like, God set up a whole system of commandments that dis- segregated and made a people distinct because of their position in relationship to him. But now we, when we fast forward, when we take this same relationship and we use it to loose us. And now we can connect with this whole world and be a part of all the foolishness that go on in this world and just do everything that the world do. Because I'm saying we God people, God love us. He know he understand my heart. That's a lie. You God's people. And you should be willing to separate yourself from the common activities that are around you because you are not common. You are a peculiar treasure. You don't take special things and do common things with them. Like I wouldn't have took my Charles Barkley card and put it in the back tire for my spike. I mean for spokes so I can get the when I'm riding. I wouldn't did that. Now that one little thorough Bailey card that came in every pack, I put that one in. <laughs> Because it's coming. I'm going to get another one of them. Like four of them. They're going to be in the same pack. Don't nobody want third baby. But because it's coming. But the Charles Barkley with the signature on it. You don't make special signs with that one. And when I used to go to school and, and have my card book. All the cards went. But except who? Charles Barkley stayed on the dress. Y'all don't put your hands on my card. <laughs> because it's special so I use it and use it and manipulate it in a way that's different from everything else and God is saying my people I've chose you you are a choice peculiar people just for me above all other nations y'all are my primary the whole earth is mine but I chose you and if we get this identity in our head, we could understand the way we move and operate in this earth. So we as the people of God, we as the church, we're not regular people. What's so special about you? God chose me. Like I can go to the store and buy a baseball for a couple dollars. But if I want to get the ball that Mark McGuire hit to set the record for the home run, I'm going to have to pay a couple hundred thousand, maybe even a million. What's so special about that baseball? Who it was connected to? Just a regular old baseball. But it has a status different from any other one. Why? Because of who it's connected to. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? And this is our identity as the church. We have a status different from the rest of the world because who we are connected to. We have been engrafted to this same promise. We are the people of God. God chose you to be special to him. Go to Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. All right, all my church folk, don't get nervous. As you heard Malachi chapter 3, I ain't been asking for your money. <laughs> your dollar safe right now. We'll pass the plate later. 
<laughs> Malachi chapter three. We're going to start at verse 13. Y'all already know what the top of it say. Verse 13 said, your words have been stout against me, said the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept this, his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Now, just watch this. Make sure we're tracking and understand. Now, we turn to the book of Malachi. I like the way Malachi set up his prophecies. It's a bit strange. But the way the book tracks is every once in a while, I think it's about seven of them. Don't quote me on that number. But God bring these charges against the people. It's like you say. I say. And God bring these charges. And this is one of them. And he said, your words have been stout against me. So this is a charge he's bringing against them. Your words, uh, you have been stout against me. Basically, he's saying, y'all been puffed up. You've been contrary to me. You've been going against me. Now, just get this picture in your head. It's a similar picture to what we was talking about with Paul. At this time, this is the post of exile. They've been exiled to Babylon. They've been brought back to the land and start rebuilding the temple and doing all that good stuff. So life is, is getting back on track. And they started saying they found the book. Ezra and Nehemiah them brought it to them. They read it. People heard the Bible read and started crying. Now, what one of y'all ever done that before? I ain't never did. I ain't going to lie. Just, just sitting there, somebody read the Bible to you, and you break down and start crying. That's what these folk did. Ezra got up there and started reading Moses. And these people started weeping. And they had, Ezra had to send teachers like, hey, man, go, go explain to people. Mom, comfort the people. And they had a great day of fasting and repentance and all that stuff. It was deep. So these are the people, the descendants of these people who he's talking to. So the, the folk got it right. But he said, y'all are stout against me. And they say, hold up. We ain't saying nothing about you, God. That's their response. We ain't saying nothing. And he said, you have said, this is what you said. It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept the ordinance is that we should walk mournfully before the Lord of hosts. But we see that they were walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts. So they was crying. They were weeping. They were fast. They were doing this stuff before God. They said we kept the ordinances. God saying y'all did this stuff. But he said, you said it's vain to do that. I'm like, hold up, God. When we said that. So you got this picture of a people who was following the religious laws. They're living in accordance to what they were taught and brought up on. But God said, y'all talking about me. Now watch how he said he ta- they talked about him. And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. So this is his charge against them and how he said they were speaking against him. So we're saying in your actions, you, you, you honoring me. Y'all walking. Y'all doing what I told you to do. It's like, but in doing that, you speaking against me because you're saying it's vain. It's empty. Ain't no point to it. And how did they get to that conclusion? Is because when they looked out at those who were not living the way that they were living, they saw something to be revered. So they lift up the wicked. They gave honor to the proud. And he said, in doing that, you're dishonoring me and you calling serving the Lord vain. Hold up, God, look what you get. It's because you're not satisfied 
in doing obeisance, in, in making worship to me. You ain't satisfied in that. Your heart is not fulfilled. You still looking towards the thing that all these fools got who don't care nothing about me. And you see in them something to be desired. If I can look at a person who reject God, deny God, walk contrary to God, and find in him something that brings shame in me, that means I'm saying that what I got ain't good is what he got. You understanding what I'm saying? If you can provoke me to envy in your disobedience, that means I desire what you have. What shows me I'm discontented with what I got. And this is the charge that God was bringing against them. Y'all following the ordinances. You walking mournfully, but you ain't content in that. And everybody who's not doing it, everybody who's proud, who's boastful, you looking out for them. You take care of them. You reveal them. You respect them. You bring them to the manifest and let them teach. Hold on, I ain't say that in that thing. I read the wrong verse. He didn't say that. But that's what he's talking about. Because we see something to be revered in them. Don't let that be because that reveals your heart. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? Anytime that the world can provoke envy in us, what we're saying is they got what we want. And what we got ain't good enough. And that should never be. So this is the charge he brought against them. But like I said, they were following the orders. So you would say that, hey, them people love God. They honor God. But I'm saying everybody got to go through their little downtime. God ain't say that. God, like, hold up. Y'all talking about me. Say one of the craziest things. Like one of the ways we bless God is a slap to the face. What do you mean by that? How often have you thanked God? Y'all don't say it like this, but I'm going to say it. I did what you mean. How often have you thanked God that he messed your life up as bad as he messed somebody else's life up? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, that could have been me. <laughs> Lord, thank you. Praise you, God. You didn't do me as bad as you did them, God, but I'm going to thank you for what I got. <laughs> <laughs> we've done that y'all done that before like I said don't tell nobody raise your hand in your heart this is the picture that he got for them now watch this then he, he, he turns in his prophecy Malachi he's saying they shall be mine hold up I mean 16 then they that fear the Lord spake often one to another and the Lord hearkened and heard it and the book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord that thought upon his name and they shall be mine, said the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then you shall return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. So there's this, this, this distinction that God has brought up. It's like, then it's coming a time where there's some people that's going to fear God. And so what do people that fear God do? They speak often one to another. So they was in communion. These people that fear God, they was in communion, talking about God. Said they thought upon his name and God made a book of remembrance for them. So the people that fear God, they talk about God. He said often, one to another. I have to read that for me. Because by nature, I'm a recluse. And so it ain't enough for me to disappear and not be on the face of the planet. But God made me to be a part of what? A community. 
And he said they talk often one to another. So there's communion going forth, back and forth again with these people that fear God. And God took them and he made this book of remembrance. And he said, and they shall be what? Mine. So God's response to these people that fear him, that think upon his name, that talk often about him, is they going to be mine. When that going to happen? When I come to, to make up my, take up my jewels. And that take up my jewels is the same thought of peculiar treasure. So my, my, my precious things. So, so God is like Smeagol. And, he, and he's looking at y'all and he's getting you together, my precious. <laughs> That's what God, he, he's longing to get all his precious together. It's like, it's coming a time where I'm going to make up my jewels and these people are going to be mine. So we, we, in this picture, we see a picture where God is condemning the people and punishing them. But there's also a picture of hope. But in this picture of hope, it's a picture of restoration. It's like, then you're going to turn. I'm going to have mercy on them. And you're going to be able to tell the difference between those who discern good and evil and those who are walking w- w- wickedness. Once God bring these jewels together. So the identity of these jewels and part of the work of these jewels is to be a possession of God, a possession that brings a distinction. Because we belong to God. Now let's go to the New Testament. Go to Titus. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2.11. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that... Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking for it. We anticipating God's return. We're living godly and soberly, righteously in this present world right now. 14, talking about Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So Jesus gave himself for us. He died. Why? That he might redeem us from what? All iniquity. So he's taking us from the thing that had us bound and bringing us well. Purify us unto himself. This is a part of the work of Christ. He's taking us out of bondage and purifying us unto himself. And here in this picture, Paul is giving a parallel to what happened in Exodus 19. God delivered them from bondage and brought them to himself. He said, Jesus, when he came, he gave himself to deliver us from bondage and bring us unto himself. This is the work that God is doing. And he banked this. He said that he gave himself. When he said gave himself, what y'all think he mean by that? That he gave himself. That he died. So Jesus died to purify us and bring us to himself. That what he, that what he died to do. And to do what? Us from all iniquity and purify unto himself what? A peculiar people. So Jesus died to bring a possession. And we see if we track this all the way through. I skipped a lot of scripture we could have went through. And if we track this theme of thought all the way throughout the Bible. God's telling Exodus, y'all my peculiar people. Deuteronomy, he said about four times, you're a peculiar treasure. You're my peculiar people. You're a peculiar nation. When Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 5, he tells them, God, please have mercy on these people. And if they pray to you, 
Bring them back. Why, God? Because they're your treasure. So you got this picture going all the way through the Old Testament that the people of God, the Israelites, are the treasure of God. They're the chosen people of God. They're the choice ones of God. They're his elect. God got these special people. But when we come to the New Testament, we see that God, Jesus, died to bring the fulfillment of the thing that began in Moses. They messed it up. But Christ bring it to fulfillment. So now through his death, we are a peculiar treasure. In the work that he began at Mount Sinai, he completed at Mount Calvary, and we become a part of that completion. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? But Jesus died to make us that. And may it never be said of me or anybody under the sound of my voice that I went out of my way to rob God of the rewards of his suffering. What do you mean by that? He died to make one people. So I give my life to work for the unity of the church. May it never be said that I did anything to bring discord. Because Jesus died to make us one. He died to redeem me. So may it never be said that I trifle with sin and put myself in a predicament that I'm defiled because he died to purify me. May Jesus receive the rewards of his suffering and to be counted worthy to receive all that he died for. And the one piece of what he died for is a unity of a special people that he chose unto himself. Y'all understand what I'm talking about? We are the completion of God's work. And God didn't switch. Go just one more. Second Peter. Second, I mean, first Peter. Hold on, let me make sure. They're one of them Peters. I think it's first Peter chapter two. Yeah, first Peter chapter two. We'll start at verse four. We'll take it home, right? Huh? Said to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Now what that, 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 um, that chief cornerstone is called what? He's, he's elect. And he's precious. That's what this cornerstone is. Cornerstone is elect and the cornerstone is precious. It's a valuable thing that God takes honor in. And if the root is one thing, the the, the, the branches are what? Same thing. He elect and precious. So who are we? We are the elect of God. Precious and beloved in his sight. Let's keep going. Unto you, therefore, which believed he is precious, but unto them which is be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, even to them which stumbled at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you shall show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which not had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is Peter's talking about the same thing. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. They rejected him. They stumbled over him. They did not see him as precious, but us who believe, he is precious. And who are we? A holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. This is what God has made us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are God's precious thing. And he died to make us this. 
and a part of us being this precious thing, what, what Peter said, that we should shew forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We should be demonstrating our choiceness. That there should be something that should be seen to be put on display that we ain't like the rest of the world. We God stuff. Then I'm saying we God people. You, know, you it's like it's amazing. Like I said, because I have maybe y'all ain't like this. Maybe there's some some trauma in my mind or something. But anybody got any family member that you can't go with them unless you dress a certain way. Y'all, y'all got that in y'all family? I know you do. We we all got. It. It's like, especially where you live, you run around playing, you outside, your auntie or whoever it is that is in your family, they come over and they finna go, so where I want to go, let me go. Uh-huh, you ain't going to want me looking like that. And the amazing thing is, they ain't shamed to say it. They don't try to hide it. They tell you, you ain't going nowhere with me looking like that. It's because they got an identity of themselves that you got to be on a certain level to even just ride in the same car with me. I'm not going to be seen with you unless you look like me. But we accept that from people. We with God and we God's choice people. Shouldn't we elevate our own self to his standard? We should be the people that God should be proud to say, yeah, they're my people, they're my people. They're my. I'm saying all of my people. Can't you tell? They all one. They same. They're mine. They ain't like nobody else. Because Jesus died to make us that way. We're a peculiar treasure and we're supposed to shine as lights in this dark world. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? So the church foundationally is God's choice people distinct from all the rest of the world. And we're going to build from now. Anybody got any questions?